I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us because today's a uh, pretty full-on topic. So how about we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word that has just been read. I thank you for the Apostle Paul who wrote it. And I pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit, you might open this word to us, that you might show us its goodness and that you might help us as your church to continue to love and serve you in ways that honour you and that seek to give and live the message of new life in Jesus. And pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, so topic for today, just to kind of you know make sure that we're all clear on what our big question for today is. Big question for today, although the writing's small, big question for today is, what does God have to say about gay marriage? What does God have to say about gay marriage? It's a topic around the place, isn't it? Yep. Whether you think that's something we really should be talking about in church or not, it's out there, isn't it? So the question is, what does God have to say about gay marriage? Well, here's the answer. Less than you think and as much as we need. Less than you think, given the prominence of the topic, and as much as we need. So what we're going to be doing this morning is thinking a little bit about it in this way. Uh, this is a, a sign from America. And in America, around the national parks, apparently, uh, they have a little uh, sign like this. It says, Property Boundary, National Forest, Land Behind This Sign. Uh, and the idea isn't that uh, the national park is this spot. It's that it's this area. This area is all national park. It's not just the one monument in the middle of it. It's an area, and it's marked out by boundaries. I'd like to say this morning that we're going to answer the topic of gay marriage not by looking at a specific spot, but thinking about the boundaries for the area that marks out God's territory on this topic. Does that make sense? It's not just one landmark. They're actually going to draw the conclusion on what God has to say by looking at the boundaries of what makes up God's territory in this area. Does that make sense? We're going to look at specifics, but we're looking at the general guidelines that will help us form an understanding of what God has to say. So, godly boundary number one, and there are going to be a number of these. We're going to put the godly boundary markers in place, and then I'm going to apply them to some very specific questions that we've talked about in our life groups this week. And we'll see how that goes, but I think that will help us. Okay. So, godly boundary number one. Uh, This comes from uh, the reading that Tim brought us this morning from Genesis, which I think you said, mate, was on page three. Is that right? Page number three, I think it was. So the, the, first, the first godly uh, marker that we're looking for uh, is that humanity is gendered. Okay? Now, that's a funny thing to say. What, what it means, in essence, is humanity actually has male and female to it. And you might remember these uh, from a little bit earlier. In, in chapter 2 and verse 18 of Genesis, the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. So God creates a man on his own, and then he says, I'm actually going to create, and you know the story from the rib, we're going to make a woman. So God creates a second person. Another person is created. She is not the same as Adam. And she is created to be a complementary helper to him. And so uh, the the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. The Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. This second person is not another man. And so humanity is gendered, not just people, 
but male and female is how God has created us. And it's in our masculinity and femininity, back in chapter 1, we see that humanity is able to bear the image of God by being man and woman. Okay? So God creates a second person, and it means for us humanity is gendered. Number two, boundary number two. Marriage is founded on heterosexual union. Uh, I was going to try and say on different gendered sex to try and keep my language the same, but do you get the idea? Heterosexual is different, not the same. So if you have a look with me, what God does is he creates male and female and then he joins them together in a one flesh union. So we see that in verse 23 and 24. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And then it says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. All right. Now you were at, some of you were at the uh, divorce and remarriage one I did before. Are you remembering this? Seen this before? Good. That's okay. Uh, it's really important to see how foundation this is. Okay. So marriage, this joining together, is actually a function of heterosexual relationships. It's one flesh union that is between a male and a female and God made it before the fall. Under God, these things are the outcome of marriage. This is what they're intended for. So we have procreation of children, lifelong faithful companionship and shameless sexual intimacy. They're the good things that were bound up in marriage at God's creation. So far, so good. God's purpose, not your happiness, is first on this list. I need to say that again. Okay? God has purposes for marriage that are his purposes, not our purposes. And he doesn't say that you might have the most joyful, awesome, wonderful life is the reason that marriage was instituted. Do you know what? I hope you do. It doesn't say you will have no trouble in your life when you're married. It doesn't say that at all. What it says is his purpose, the reason he's put male and female together, is for his service. And although we're wonderful benefits we derive from it, happiness in particular isn't the first point. And even better, it doesn't actually say even that the sex will be great. Can I say that? It doesn't say that either. It says there'll be a great outcome for that, but it doesn't say it'll be great. Okay, we've observed that. Boundary marker number three. The fall affects us all. Unintended poetry there. Don't worry about the rhyme. The fall affects us all, but there we go. What is the fall? The fall is the bit where sin enters into the world and breaks our relationship with each other and our relationship with God and, as Kathy prayed, our relationship with the world that was entrusted to our care. Sin has messed me up. It's messed me up with you, with God, and with the world. Sin in particular affects that marriage relationship. So in place of this, we now see selfishness, divorce, shame. Our marriage ideal has been really badly scarred by the presence of sin. 
So God's good purpose suffers from our selfishness and our sinfulness. Well, so far I don't think I've said anything that you haven't heard before, so we're going okay. This is what it says in Romans when it talks about sin. And it's worth us hearing this. In Romans 8 it says, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Let me be 100% clear. Our sin means we can't please God on our own. That's a big deal. More than that, we can see from our passage in 1 Corinthians 6, and I'll be trying to refer to that so you can see it all together there. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says this. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You see, you were made for God. Your sin takes you away from him. Your body was not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And so as we are sinners, we are at odds with God, all of us, all of us, until we're washed clean by Jesus. Okay, boundary marker number four. You ready for some good news? I can tell you are. Jesus offers forgiveness for all. We can probably just end the sermon there and we can all go home. That's the best news you've ever heard, I tell you. I promise you, that is the best news you've ever heard. Jesus offers forgiveness for all. All of that brokenness, all of that hurt, all of that damage, Jesus offers forgiveness for all, all of it. That is truly remarkable. Have a look with me. If you go to, uh, go to that passage, 1 Corinthians 6, we're going to be uh, spending some time there. So I think that was on page 1145 uh, in the Bibles that are on your seats there. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'd love you to have it open so you can see that it's actually all coming from this little part of God's word here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'm going to read verse 9 and then verse 11. Uh, incidentally, uh, you have to hear the bad news from the Bible before you hear the good news, okay? I know that probably is frustrating. Uh, and for some of us who are, do you want the good news or the bad news? What do you want first? To some of you, put your hand up if you like the good news first. Put your hand up if you like the bad news first. Fantastic, I'm in the right building, obviously, great. I always want to hear the bad news first, because then whatever comes next has to be an improvement. That's, that's my understanding, right? So here's the bad news, you ready? Here's the bad news, verse 9. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. So we're clear, who are the wrongdoers in this building? Okay, it's you, but no, it's not you, it's me, I am, you are, we are, not Australians, we're all sinners, okay? We're we're all people who are out of relationship with God until we're saved. And it says here very strongly, so that we don't miss it, all wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. In short, you won't go to heaven. How blunt am I being today? All right? But here's the good news, you ready for the good news? The good news is in verse 11. Have a look at this. And that is what some of you were. That is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the best news ever. What what does 
you were washed mean? Well, that's pretty straight. All the dirty stuff was washed away. You, you were sanctified. What does that mean? Made holy. You were made holy. You were justified. The charge against you has been dropped. The charge against you has been dropped. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So who were we? You and I were wrongdoers. But the church in Corinth says, and that's what some of you were. You used to be that, but today you're not. Today, you are the recipients of God's grace. And all God's people went, oh yeah, that's all right. That's exciting, isn't it? Washed, sanctified, justified. People who were enemies with God can now be children of God. Brilliant. That is what some of you were. Okay, that was the good news. And now I've got an extra little bit on top of that. Point number five, boundary marker number five, is new life costs everyone. New life costs everyone. It was one at great cost. Jesus had to die for us. But for you to receive it, at one level, it's totally free. At another level, it will cost you everything. Totally free, and yet it will cost you everything. Have a look at this. This is from Luke chapter 9. Jesus says very famously, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Forever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. This Jesus thing's easy. Yeah, let's go do it. And Jesus says, oh, okay, sure, you can, you can be on board with me. I'm carrying a cross. You get one and follow me. Now for us, we think, oh, that's okay to carry a cross. I've got a chain for it. It just goes around my neck. Yeah? Not what he meant. Incidentally, please keep wearing your crosses around your neck. Not a problem. What he meant was, pick up this instrument of humiliation and torture and die with me. Die with me. You'll live. It'll be the best life you can have, but you'll need to die. Putting you first must stop. God first. Secondly, we see it in the, uh, in the passage here. Have a look at the end of chapter 6 where you have your hands in the Bible. Uh, in verses 18 to 20. Flee from sexual immorality, it says there in verse 18. And then come down to verse 20, it says, You were bought at a price. You are not your own. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. You see, you think, actually... I'm the most important person in the universe. Oh, that might be a shock for you because you think you're the most Im- I am. Okay. No, I'm not. The most important person in the universe is Jesus. Him first, not me. And he bought us at the price of his life on the cross. You were bought at a price, therefore what should you do? Male got a postcard once a week from church. I don't think so. It says, honour God with your bodies. That's a huge deal, isn't it? He died for you. He wants your life back. Honour him with your bodies. Number six. 
Same gender sex is condemned. Same gender sex is condemned. Uh, this is kind of coming up for a whole bunch of discussion if you're listening to things uh, around the place. And I want to tell you, this is what the Bible you have in your hand says, whether we would like it to be that way, not like it to be that way. I'm going to show you what the Bible says on this topic. I said to you, this isn't everything the Bible has to say, but it's one of our boundary points. So have a listen with me. Okay, in the Old Testament, we find in Leviticus uh, chapter 18 and verse 22 this. It says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman that is detestable. Now, whatever you might think about that and how awkward it is to even address that in, in church, it's not difficult to see what God thinks about that there, is it? I take no joy from reading it. You need to know that. But there it is. The argument is, that's the Old Testament, right? That's like food laws and, and everything else. What about the New Testament? New Testament doesn't say anything like that, does it? Well, let me show you something from the New Testament. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. You've just got it open in front of you. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, etc., etc., will inherit the kingdom of God. Is it explicit there in the New Testament? I think it is. Right there. There it is. Now, some would say, okay, well, that's just men. The New Testament has nothing to say about women. I want to show you this passage again, not because I take any joy in doing it. I just want you to see that it's not absent from the Bible. Okay, There isn't a lack of data. All right, Have a look with me. Uh, here, I'll show you a passage from Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 in verse 21. The reason I put verse 21 up there, and then I'm going to read to you verses 26 and 27, is this is the reason given in the passage, that these things follow. We don't have time here to work through chapter 1 at length, but I want to show you that's why it's there. So it says this. It's talking about people in the world. It says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, people knew God and they turned away from him. We come down to uh, verse 26 and it says, Because of this, because of their turning away, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Again, I want you to know, I don't read this with any joy or pleasure this morning in church. I just want you to see it's deliberately and carefully spelled out in the Bible in the Old and the New Testament. So, same gender sexual relations are condemned in the Bible. This is a point you must hear. You must hear. Same gender sex is not exclusively condemned. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. It's not singled out as the worst sin ever. Can you hear me say this? It is not singled out as the worst sin ever. And I'm going to show you how much we miss when we think it is. Here's that passage that I just read to you. I'm going to read it to you again in full. 
Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Now, I think we read, we hear the orange up there. I want to show you what that passage looks like if we stop and think again. Have a listen to this. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do do you see what I'm saying? The point is, there's actually an incredible list here of people who are in serious danger of not inheriting the kingdom of God. And if I'm honest, and if you're honest, we'll find ourselves in this list at some point, won't we? I will find myself on this list. And if anyone's thinking they'll get out of jail free... Remember what Jesus says, if you look with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Yes? It's a terrible list. It's a list that should strike fear into our hearts right here, right now. If you live like that, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters... Guests, visitors, everyone who's here today, you need to know this lifestyle, spelt out like that, puts you outside the kingdom of God. Now, one of those components has a huge, apparently out of all proportion, reputation in the church, doesn't it? How much as a church do we talk about greed? Got to do it more. Slandering. Gee, we better get on to that. Think particularly about the way we speak about politicians. But, you know, like at one level, haven't we just given that a pass? Yeah? Well, that's a, that's a totally socially acceptable one. Australians, that's what we do, isn't it? We, we're obligated socially to put people down. And all I want to say to you is, make no mistake, it's on the list with homosexuality. Are you with me? So please hear it in right proportion. And if our church here, or any church, makes that sin greater than their address on greed, which has to be the biggest one pressing in on all of us, doesn't it? Woe to us. Number eight. Celibacy is for all who are unmarried. Do you remember I said that the new life costs everyone? It costs everyone. It really does. Uh, we, we heard from Jesus the other day in the Divorce and Remarriage service, uh, Sermon. I want to read this again because it's just, I think, really striking. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, the disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. In other words, they said, this marriage thing seems way too heavy. Maybe it's just better not to marry. And Jesus says, now you're getting it. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, the word that it's better not to marry. 
but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. What he's saying is, live as people who are sexually off the, off the agenda. It's, there's, sex is not our agenda anymore. A eunuch is someone who had their um, genitalia removed so that they could be safe serving in the household. Right? Terrible, uh, terrible thing. Jesus said it, I didn't say it. Right? But what he's saying is they choose, some people choose to be like that, to be not expressing their sexuality because of the kingdom of God. And if you're not married, that's what he's calling you to do. Is that easy? So we're clear, I want to say it is absolutely not easy. And if, we, if we're preaching to the to, uh, you know, New Life, one day might have an evening service full of 20s and teens and all those sort of things, you know? Your children, perhaps, when they're growing up or something. So they're sitting here and I'm saying to them, do you know what? You need to be sexually pure. You need to not sleep with anyone until you're married. And they go, do you know what age people get married in Australia these days? Well, the average age, I think, is it's 27, 28, something like that. And puberty keeps on getting younger and younger, and they're going, what are you doing to us? And all I want you to hear, brothers and sisters, is this Bible here speaks a hard word to everyone. And one of the hard words is to do with sexual expression, and it says outside of marriage, guess what? None. Wow. That's heavy, isn't it? Number nine. Godly godly boundary number nine. I think this is so important to say. On on earth as in heaven is God's priority. What do I mean by that? Again, have a listen to Jesus. I like listening to Jesus. He's pretty good, isn't he? This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees, right? Who were the seriously religious people of his day. The people who tried to be the most religious. Okay? And this is what he says to them in uh, Luke chapter 11, verses 39 to 43. The Lord said to him, he's subtle, isn't he? Look at how subtle Jesus is. You ready? You are full of greed and wickedness. Oops. But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor. And everything will be clean for you. Why do you Pharisees? Because you give to God a tenth of your mint and dill. So you've got your herb, you know, and you're, you're counting them out. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one for God. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one for God. You're trying to be religious, tithing at that level, right? Which you'd think, wow, these guys are deadly serious about being holy, aren't they? You give a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Do you know what? God actually wants, is happy, is not saying you're an idiot for tithing out your garden herbs. That's what I would have said. You're an idiot. Stop mucking around with garden herbs and get on with the rest of it. God's saying, actually, no, do you know what? I'm concerned about holiness in every, every area of your life, including your pantry. Keep doing that, but don't neglect these things. You want to know what the big banner thing on God's agenda is? Have a look at that. Be generous to the poor. You neglect justice. 
and the love of God. What is God's beating heart for this world? Passion for the poor, for justice and for love for him. That's what's on God's agenda. That's the big flashing light on God's agenda. And to cut to the chase, it's not gay marriage. Okay, big questions. I've given you some boundary markers. You might like them. You might hate them. There they are. I think that's what the Bible has to say to give us the area to think in on this topic of same-sex attraction. Let's apply it, or at least I do so with fear and trembling. Let's try and think what it means in practice. Is it wrong to feel SSA? And you're going, what on earth is SSA? Uh, SSA is same-sex attraction. Okay? No, I don't have enough time to do this. I think, um, I think when we accept that my feeling is definitive for who I am as a human being, we've made a mistake. Okay? And, and let me see if I can kind of unpack that for a second. Um, I don't think it's wrong in any way to be tempted or to feel same-sex attraction. It's a function of the fact that we live this side of the fall. I have all sorts of desires in me that are not good. Right? So should you feel same-sex attraction, I don't think all of a sudden that you have fallen into a special category of people who are outside the love of God. Feeling attracted to someone of the same sex will not rule you out of heaven. Temptation comes to all of us. In fact, didn't Jesus say that adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Did it say that? Now, have you ever, and I won't won't get you to put up your hands for this one at all, but have you ever had an an adulterous thought? Ever? Right, I have. I I don't say that in any... Any, any way to cover myself in glory. It's a, it's a terrible thing. However, it's not outside of the scope of things that God will deal with. First thing to say, the fall affects us all. We have messed up desires in us by virtue of the fact that sin has affected us all. And you will know this. I don't need to preach long on this, do I? You know that you have desires in you that are at odds with what God would want for us. Yes? Secondly, Jesus offers forgiveness for all. I can't say this highly enough. This is not the end of the road. If you have this feeling of attraction, it is not the end of the world. I encourage everyone. Did did you sing that song? No guilt in life, no shame. No shame in life, no guilt in whatever it is. You guys will tell me. No guilt in life, no, no fear in death. The no guilt thing isn't a mind trick. It's an offer of God by the work of his Holy Spirit to forgive us through Jesus. You can know forgiveness for that. What about a truly committed, same-sex attracted relationship? Shouldn't the church just say, commitment is good enough? Now, we are people who want to value commitment, don't we? I do. I want to exhort married people to stick in. In fact, I told you a couple of weeks ago to fight for your marriages. 
So what do we say to people who are committed in same-sex attracted marriages? I think we have to say that marriage is founded in heterosexual union. That thing is the exclusive domain under God's good order of heterosexual people. I don't find that easy to say. I don't think that's... But there it is. God made it before the fall and he made it for male and female to fulfil his job of partnering with one another, male and female, to fulfil his good purposes for the earth, to fill the earth and subdue it. Second thing I'd say is that celibacy is for all who are unmarried. And look, I, what do I say about this? It's so easy to look at me and think, I'm a married, white minister, right? What the heck do I know about the cost of what I'm saying? Yeah? Of course you can say that. Of course you can say that. It's easy to say. I want to tell you that I sat under this one here, celibacy is for the unmarried, for 27 years of my life. Got married as a 27-year-old virgin. Now, if you think that's easy, well, you've probably lived in the same world I have and it's not easy at all, is it? Am I asking a standard of people that I haven't tried to live myself? My answer to that would be no. And that's say, oh, but, but, but you got out of it because you got married. Well, there was no... <laughs> Sorry? Yeah. I was, I'm very blessed to be married is what I would say. I'm very blessed. And God wasn't obligated to give me a marriage partner, so we're clear. And his expectation stands whether I have one or not. And so all I can tell you is my own struggle to live under God's word and say, I have felt the weight of this. I find no joy in calling anyone to it other than to say, God says it will be for your best. Aren't we just misusing the Bible? And, and, and then you've, you've heard this one, surely, haven't you? The prawns one. You know, it says in the Bible we can't eat crustaceans and so... You know, there you are, and, and uh, mixed fibre clothing, can't do that. And look, here I am in a polyester jacket. and you know. So I'm flaunting one part of the Bible, but I'm, I'm, I'm calling you to account on the other one. And I hope I've shown you carefully this morning, whether I like it or not, that the Bible says clearly in the Old and the New Testament a consistent message that same gender sex is condemned. Isn't gay marriage simply a matter of equality? Isn't it a matter of equality? Look, I think at some level, uh, we have to feel the weight of this one, okay? Uh, Why is it that a particular segment of our our, uh, society gets treated differently in this way? Can I tentatively say this back to you? I actually don't think marriage is an equality issue. I think we actually stop a lot of people from getting married. I don't know if you've thought about this. You can't marry your sister. 
I have to fill these forms out, right? You can't marry your mother or father. You can't marry your cousin. And, and literally, I have to sit down with people as I fill out the marriage preparation forms, right? And I have to say, are you related? And I say, if you are and you don't declare it here, you need to know your marriage is invalid. Not just before God, but before the state. Did you know that? Now, is marriage equality about letting anyone... So, so the answer could be, but I really love, insert people here. They really love each other. Now, as a society, we tell them, guess what? You can't. Is that just? Is it fair? Does it respect love and commitment? Well, I'm saying it's unfair, it's unjust, if your primary concern is letting the feeling of love trump God's order. You with me? So I'm going to say gay marriage isn't a matter of equality per se because our society stops lots of people from marrying. However, because marriage is founded in heterosexual union, the only way that we would encourage people to be married is in the way that God created marriage to be, which is male and female, unrelated. Secondly, I'd say the reality is if we feel the weight of that and we think that's unjust and unfair, I'd say God speaks a hard word to all of us and new life costs every one of us. I just want to make you... I, I, did, I didn't know this, did some homework. Here's some things that you might be aware of. If you Google, no, don't worry, I'll, I'll show you where it is. Um, uh, on the 28th of June, New South Wales Parliament passed the Miscellaneous Acts Amendment, same-sex relationships bill, which recognises co-mothers as legal parents of children born through donor insemination, provides birth certificates, etc., etc. Um, and what it says here... Uh, and creates amendments to the New South Wales Discrimination Act to ensure same-sex couples are protected from discrimination on the basis of their marital or domestic status in employment, accommodation, and access to goods and services. The bill passed, uh, and so that's, that, that happened. That's in law in 2008. One more law that you should be aware of. Registered relationships. In February 2010, New South Wales Attorney General um, Hatsistagos announced to the state government will, in, will introduce legislation for statewide relationships register, modelled on the one already in place in ACT Victoria, Tasmania, entering into a registered relationship provides conclusive proof of, proof of the existence of relationship, thereby gaining, ready for this, this is the key, thereby gaining all the rights afforded to de facto couples under state and federal law without having to prove any further factual ev evidence of the relationship. In this way, a registered relationship is similar to a registered partnership or civil union in other parts of the world. The law came into effect in the 1st of July, 2010. If I was concerned about equality in my society where we aren't run by church, we're run by a government that isn't a church government, I would want to, out of love, make sure people aren't discriminated against. That's taken care of in 2008. In our law, it says here that they will be treated for superannuation and even parental leave as de facto couples by the law that was put in place in 2010. 
I think that takes care of discrimination. It means legally access to superannuation, holidays, parental leave, all that is actually in place for people who will register their relationship as a same-sex relationship. Now, when it comes to a question of equality, right, I would say New South Wales has actually put in place some considerable laws to take care of same-sex couples in our community. Is the registered relationship that they're looking for marriage? Well, I, I think at, that, at one level we're, playing, we're trying to claim a name for something that isn't the thing. Okay? I'm going to dare to say this, all right? In 1978, some people were walking for a protest about some riots that happened in New York City. They were walking in in Sydney. And they called some other people out to join them in the process in Oxford Street. And they had a march at which 53 people were arrested. That march for the rights of people in New York who had been locked up, was the first march for the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. Right? The next year they had a bigger walk, and despite the fact that it was still illegal, the government didn't arrest people, and it's grown from there. It's now called the Gay, Lesbian, um, Bisexual, Intersex, Transsexual Mardi Gras, I think. I think, I think, they're the, I think it's five of those things. Uh, and it happens every year as a celebration of a sexual identity that is different from the heterosexual community. It is about commemorating the uh, injustice that happened on that first day. It's about standing for their individual identity in the community. Now, whether you like the gay or lesbian Mardi Gras or not, that's what it's about. Now, if I try and change a law that says... The gay and lesbian Mardi Gras is actually about heterosexual monogamous unions. How would we feel about that? Now, you might think that's brilliant. You might hate it. But I tell you what, the people who love it, who know what it's for, would say if you put heterosexual across the top of that, that you are fundamentally devaluing the essence, heart, meaning, purpose of that march. Does that make sense? Now, I think that's what's at stake when we say that same-sex unions are marriage. At one level, what does it matter, right? It's just a word. My concern is that people get looked after rightly under law in in our community, and I think that's in place. Beyond that... My concern is that what we're looking for is to just grab a title and stick it on something that it isn't. Okay? And while discrimination should never be part of our community, this, I think, uh, trophy chasing of the word marriage diminishes the thing that it is. How should I treat my same-sex attracted friend? You already know the answer to this, by the way. You absolutely know the answer to this. You know that Jesus offers forgiveness for all. I want to tell you, however you personally feel about it, it is irrelevant in the sight of God that they're same-sex attracted. They're the same as your next friend. 
who doesn't know Jesus and needs to know him. It's not a special category. You saw the list, didn't you? Yeah, you saw the list? Just one on a number of lists. How should you treat them? You should love them. You should connect, care, communicate and lead them to commit. There isn't a special category here. Jesus forgives all. And appropriately, as I would say to anyone who's living outside of God's plan, in good timing, not as the first thing that you would say, because you would never say it to anyone else, you will encourage them that celibacy is God's plan for people who are unmarried. But you don't know anyone who you come up to who's sleeping with their boyfriend, who you say as the first thing, hey, you guys, you've got to stop that. Now, would you like to come to church? Now, you know this. We must love people who are struggling with same-sex attraction and welcome them here. They must be able to come here. They must be able to come here while they're still sleeping with their friend. Because I want this church to be filled up with people who need to hear the good news about Jesus, yes? Not just people who've heard it and have decided that Jesus is king. And so I won't be running any checks on anyone walking in here because they must be welcome. Are you with me? What does God have to say about gay marriage? I need to finish on this. Here's what God's got to say about gay marriage. On earth as it is in heaven is his priority. We must let his priority, his actual priority, not some agenda from wherever, drive what gets us up in the morning, what we weep and cry and repent about. It cannot be that gay marriage is the thing in the church. Are we clear? Here's where I finish. To everyone, because it's all of us. It's you and me and anyone here who's struggling with same-sex attraction. Here's what God's word says on that specific topic. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Everyone here today, you are called to honour God with your bodies. It'll be costly and beautiful and what's best. May God have mercy on us all. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, these are deep things in our society, in our own hearts, and in our witness to the world around us. Father, free the church from any wrongful preoccupation with this topic. Restore in us, Father, our love for you and for the world around us. Help us to pursue justice and mercy and the love of God. Heavenly Father, forgive us where we've been judgmental. Fill our conversation with grace and truth. Father, help us to repent of those areas where we've sinned. Help us to find the joy of your forgiveness. And Father, give us a message of new life that you will take to every home. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.